0: Hi everyone, Mark Roberts here from Film Hustlers. Just want to thank everyone for listening into the show. We really appreciate it. Wanted to remind you that there's a bunch of shows on how to get a lawyer, how to get a good cast for your movie, how to get a good casting director, how to raise money. We, we kind of cover it all, so if you want to go back, check out some of those shows, I would definitely do it. Also, if you want to send them to your friends, anybody who's a filmmaker can benefit from some of the information that we have on all these uh, programs. I also want to thank our sponsor, Extreme Music.com. they really are the best in the biz and if you need music for anything you're working on any kind of content whether it's a film or a tv show or a commercial or even an industrial whatever you got they have music for everything definitely check them out enjoy the show <laughs> okay. all right ready yeah we're all right cool on. ladies and gentlemen welcome to film hustlers Welcome, hey. welcome. Good to see you guys. That was a good
1: intro. You know why it was good, Roberts? Because you weren't nervous. Normally you get nervous. <laughs> After five years, uh, now you're just like, boom, you went right into it. Well, Hats off. You've been watching Mario Lopez? Yeah, yeah I'm
0: excited go. because I got we got Michael Jablow here today. Is that how you say your name, Michael Jablow?
2: Jablow. Oh. Like Dirty Fighting, like Jablow. Yeah, okay, Jablow. <laughs> My, uh, we've, jab-low? we've got
0: Michael Jablow here today. Uh, welcome to the show, Michael. Yeah, I met Michael. He was recommended by our executive at Netflix. Uh, we hired him. You know, I saw that there was a poster on the wall for 61, right? Which was directed by um, Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal. Uh, and I was like, okay, that's interesting. And then we, and then as we would joke around about different movies, we, I found out he did Naked Gun, the first Naked Gun. Mean Girls 2, Throw Mama from the Train yes, was one Throw of Mama them. Throw Mama
2: from the Train, Hair um, with Milos Foreman, uh, Old School. Oh, Um, the contender, which got two Oscar nominations for Jeff Bridges and Joan Allen.
0: Also, did uh, barbershop? No, not barbershop. Was it beauty shop? Beauty shop. I cut beauty
2: shop with Queen Latifah and an all-star cast.
0: He's such a good editor that he gets points on his movie sometimes.
2: (laughs) Really? Yeah, like actual percentages. Just once. Oh, was it just once? Uh, When I cut Muppet Christmas Carol with Michael Caine, I took a huge cut in my salary because I really wanted to do the movie and as a reward they gave me one percent of the Henson take on the movie and what I've seen in the last 30 years is 0. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: sounds like Hollywood accounting. Yes, Hollywood yes. accounting. Well, we've had we've had a really good time. I've learned a lot about you and about your your the history of your work. I mean, you're a terrific editor. It's funny to to work on a film with somebody and to see like the process that they go through. I mean, slowly but surely the way these films do, they got it got better and better to the point where literally I would sit there like I sit there now and I think like there's not one arbitrary cut in the movie like perfect looking movie and all edits work doesn't always work that way by the way
2: no it does not always work that way and there was very little that had to be saved uh, it really has to do with um mark's work on the movie which was oh, wow. extraordinary wow. and the director who they were a great team yeah we are in post-production yeah. we have been a great team everyone contributing ideas to things, saying let's try this, let's try this. Um it's a process. It's always a process. This has actually been I've been at this for 50 years and this has been one of the happiest post productions I've ever been on. Oh wow. wow. Well, wow. That's that speaks volumes well, because normally it's all about
1: him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, in some way he's like this is mine. This is it's his mind, it's always going this way. You're like dude, you're the producer, settle down. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, relax. <laughs> don't forget afterwards, split <laughs> me the hundreds. So that's <laughs> yeah. right. That's right. Thank you. No, I appreciate that. Here you go. I'm gonna
0: you, you take Venmo? Um <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so let's go let's go back in time a little bit so that people can understand like the origin story of Michael Jablow. B- Jablow. 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 Like Sorry. boxing. Oh Jablow. Like Michael Jablow. i we'll give you a Jablow after Jablow. Look, um, I don't care how
2: you pronounce it, as long as you call me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the check clears. Yeah, and the check clears. And the, the name's right on the check. Exactly. That's it. Um,
0: how people get into the lane that they end up in. Like, how Did you always want to be an editor? When did that show up in
2: your life? I really... It showed up in my life in my first film class at Goddard College in 1967. I just really enjoyed the editing room. I enjoyed the whole process, and we were making we. This was so primitive that we didn't even have a moviola. In order to judge cuts, we would cut on um, a movie scope. Where literally where you're turning the handles, and then to see what the the pace was, I take the sixteen millimeter film, all silent, and put it up on a projector and look at it on the projector. But there was something to me so magical about just putting images next to each other uh, and creating new meaning once they're uh, once they're next to each other. Um, Later, I went to School of Visual Arts in New York. I learned everything there. I learned how to shoot. Um, I learned how to record sound. I um, And I learned how to cut.
0: Is that because you were in a school that required you to kind of help I others? Was in yeah. a,
2: yes, absolutely. But once I got out of school, I actually used all of those things to make a living. In February of 1973... I got a ride across the country with some friends of mine and got in touch with another friend who was, who went to School of Visual Arts in New York and was at the American Film Institute. I was planning on staying for a couple of weeks. I had an apartment back in New York. I was traveling with nothing but a backpack. The minute I got there, he offered me a job.
0: And this is to L.A., you're saying? And this it's, is to L.A. You know. at the
2: American Film Institute. And in those days, the American Film Institute was only had 20 students there was no tuition and the government gave you five thousand dollars the first year to direct a 16 millimeter film and ten thousand dollars the second year wow and he offered me a job as a boom man on an afi film uh we then went he then had a job um shooting uh, rock and Roll promo film for a and Records. This was before there were videos. This is like, um, and we went to the Hollywood Bowl and shot this band called Gallery. I was the assistant cameraman and loaded magazines and then I went and cut the film and I found myself sitting on Hollywood and Vine in the chem offices, cutting this rock and roll promo film for a and Records, I had been out of film school for a year, and it was just one thing after another. I cut the, the promo film, then we went off and we did a low budget um, horror film called Rattlers. That we shot in Palmdale. I was the assistant cameraman on there, and sometime operator. I actually got a chance to shoot with a Mitchell, which is the classic Hollywood camera from the 1930s. So that, was that was a huge, enormous. It was enormous. Absolutely enormous. It must have weighed 200 pounds.
0: And they couldn't. They couldn't control the sound. They couldn't no, control the sound they, coming they out of it. They couldn't. Right? But
2: we were doing action stuff, and we had three cameras. And I was the. the my job was the clapper loader. So So I got promoted and became the third cameraman. (laughs) And one thing just led to another. I ended up going back to New York um, for a while and decided that what I really wanted to do was be an editor. And I passed out 125 resumes in two weeks, walking from place to place, got a job as an apprentice at a commercial house. And they said they would pay me, that they would let me join the union after six months. I hated the job. I hated doing TV commercials. And you'll appreciate this because there was a tremendous amount of searching for stock footage involved. (laughs) In the days when we didn't have computers, I literally had to go from film library to film library and sit there and look for crowd shots for a Simmons mattress commercial that wasn't shot properly. You couldn't just
1: Google, go on YouTube? And- <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> so then so then
0: you fell in love with editing. Was, did you not go back to any other gig like shooting or directing or any I of that? I did
2: not after a certain point. But Once, is it
0: because you kept getting jobs? Yes, I, yeah. kept
2: getting, I kept getting jobs.
0: Did you ever dream about going back to do something else? No. That's no, amazing. I
2: had tried directing when I was in film school, and I do not have that ability to stand there in the midst of a large group of people and just say, you do this, you do this, you do this. No, that hat's the wrong color. I want a different lamp there. Um, you know, it's just, I. my thought processes are much more meditative. And I love sitting in the editing room by myself with dailies and trying to visualize what the director had in mind for the scene or what would be an interesting way to approach the scene. It's it's like in the movie that we're just finishing, Meet Me Next Christmas, there is a scene that takes place in a Chanel store. But the action involved in it Which is this? uh, Which is them? Wait, uh, our two main characters standing and waiting in line is not what it is about. It's about our two characters watching each other, and our main character watching what the guy who she's with does because it the whole scene turns on that. So when I went in and and edited the the thing, I was always looking for is the point of view of Layla, the character who is reacting to Teddy in it, because it could have been cut in an entirely different way, sort of a very objective way, but the scene didn't require that from the get-go, and I could see that from the way that Rusty had had shot it. It's the scene in many ways I'm most proud of because what is in the cut today as we finish the film is very close to the first cut that I had.
0: Yeah. A lot of times as a producer, you have to sort of sit back and let people do their work for a long time. Not not just one, like you come in and see a rough cut, like clearly the first thing you want to do is give notes on any, everything that doesn't look right. But the truth is, is that, this is the first cut and it's going to continue to get better and 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 as time goes on you see you're like oh maybe there should be a close-up here maybe there's another look or something and um, and it's hard because you have to let people do their job for a long time before you start interjecting on what you think it's an amazing thing to want to sit there for you know 10 hours a day I'm sure when you first started you would sit there you know looking at film and hanging film that must have taken longer
2: It did take longer. Strangely enough, the thing you were saying, couldn't I just Google it? Uh, In the old days of film, every single time I made a trim, I would hang it. And sometime I would have what we refer to as smidges, which are one frame trims or two frame trims with with information, code numbers written on them in grease pencil. And I would constantly be yelling for my assistance to get me stuff i mean going i started on the avid in 1996 um and would never go back because the fact that i can just hit a button and get the match frame and see what an extension on a shot is and i no longer have to search for trims um
0: and in 96 that was the explosion of of, that was uh, the
2: explosion i decided at that point that i was not going to be the last uh, film editor in Hollywood cutting on film. If it was going digital, I was going digital, and I learned the Avid because everyone told me it was the harder system to learn. So I figure if I'm going to learn something, I may as well learn the hardest thing.
0: What was it? There was Lightworks? There Lightworks
2: was, was the big competitor to Avid. Yeah, and that's gone now. For many years. Yeah.
0: I found it interesting that Apple had a... What was it called? Apple had one. It was called... I uh, movie. <laughs> That's what I added on. Final Cut. Yes. Final Cut. Final yeah. Cut
2: Pro. It still yeah. exists, but yeah. mostly is an amateur thing.
0: Because it does, Because there's no more um, upgrades. That's it.
2: There are no more upgrades. Wow. They, just, they just dropped it. You know, it's a very exotic market, the market for film editing, and they could not make enough money in it. Uh, the thing about Avid is not only do they make the media editor, you know, but they also manufacture tons of things for TV stations. So that they're all the the commercials that are run on TV stations, all that's put together on Avid. So they could
0: push a button.
2: Yeah, so they can push a button, and that's where Avid really makes its money. I mean, there are competitors now, um, there's Adobe Premiere, but that has drawbacks yeah. in that it's much more difficult to work on a multi-editor show we had two habits on this show me and my assistant would bounce things back and forth
0: shout out to Nadav yeah I, I got you girl <laughs>
2: um,
0: but, but yeah, the, the, the 1996 was the explosion, and then no, one, and then no one ever went back, and everything's cut di- uh, non-linear and digital now. Um, was but, that when the XL1 came out, '96? Remember the camera? I want to say yeah, but yeah. probably yeah, that, right? about that, that, yeah. that was
1: like game changer. I remember. Yeah, it was a little later than that, but yeah, a little bit later, right? Yeah.
0: Uh, but what what would you say was the turning point in your career when you were like when you really felt like oh wow? I'm going to make a living being an editor. Because that happens to everyone, right? At one point yes. in your life, it's like, oh, wow, yes. this is going to be a for yes. real thing for me.
2: The, the turning point in my career is when I went to work for uh, Lindsay Klingman, who was my mentor, who um, had just cut One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest oh, God, love that and still was not in the union in California. I met her, uh, I actually met her at a party in Hollywood, and then we ran into each other again in New York, and her assistant had just quit. She was doing a movie called You Light Up My Life, uh, with probably the worst director in the world. Who was that? uh, A guy named Joe Brooks, who ended up being... um, arrested for um rape and sexual molestation he ended up killing himself rather than go to jail he billed himself as the mozart of madison avenue he wrote jingles he was a, a, a madison avenue jingle writer who wrote songs and we ended up working on this movie and then after that um
0: What was the movie, though? What was the movie that you were like, oh, wow, everyone's going to know this movie? Hair.
2: Hair. Wow. Lindsay hired me as her first assistant on Hair. I ended up becoming uh, a co-editor. And we had a huge editing room, Alan Heim, who won the Oscar for cutting all that jazz did one came in and did as a guest editor and did one number on it that milo didn't want to work on and um i worked on that film for 18 months we were in production for nine months from september 7th into uh, of 1977 until um memorial day of 1978 wow I mean, it is the longest picture I've ever been on. It's one of the longest jobs I've ever had.
0: Were you really proud of, you, proud of that when oh, you saw enormous it finally? I, yeah.
2: I think it holds up incredibly well. I, it was my postgraduate school in editing. And then I l- finished that movie and got hired to do uh, a Redford movie at Fox. Did that for another year. Uh, a picture called Brew Baker. And at that point, I was very, very tight with the head of post production at um, 20th Century Fox. And I walked into his office when we finished the movie, and we were sitting there sipping scotch. And uh, I said, I can't be an assistant editor anymore, it's driving me insane. Um, and he had been the VP of post at United Artists when I was doing Hair and Woody Allen has said, I know you're not supposed to mention his name, but Woody Allen said (laughs) that 90% of everything is showing up. In many ways, the big change in my career came. We had taken Hair to Denver to preview it. We had a very good preview. A meeting was called with the heads of United Artists, Eric Pleskow and, and Crim and Mike Medavoy for 30 in the morning. We were going to have a breakfast meeting and Gary Gerlich was there. Milos Forman, the director, didn't show up. <laughs> Lester Persky and Bob Greenhut, the producers, didn't show up. Lindsey Klingman, the supervising editor, didn't show up. I showed up. I sat there with them and brainstormed everything they were going to need for the release of the movie, uh, we flew back to LA that afternoon. I got a call from Gary at UA. He called me into the Universal or into the UA offices in Beverly Hills at the time and said, "Obviously, you're the only one who we can communicate with. You're in charge." <laughs> and I'll I pissed everyone off. <laughs> yeah, I basically I did, nobody else really wanted to do it, and I just filled in and supervise the completion of the movie and so I had a relationship with him I then went to do this picture at Fox and while I was there Alan Ladd who had been the head of Fox got fired by Chris Craft because he was asking for too much money and too much power and Sherry Lansing came in and Uh when Sherry came in she brought in Gary Gerlich again as her head of post-production so, I had this long relationship with Gary, and Gary got me my first feature, which was um, Modern Problems, starring Chevy Chase in yeah, 1981. Yeah, great movie, yeah. You know, and, but there's, you know, nobody ever, uh, I, at that point, I was definitely an editor, but there are so many ups and downs. My... Old friend Stephen Jellenhall called his production company Rollercoaster Films because you never—it doesn't matter how high you go, you're going to hit those lows also. So I finished Modern Problems. I basically went. Uh, I again, it was a situation where the director who is no longer with us, was completely out of his mind and fell in love with every frame that he shot. And I ended up being put in charge to recut the movie by myself with Sherry Lansing. It opened Christmas Day 1981 and made $28 million in the first four weeks and is still one of the highest uh, opening Christmas movies ever. I didn't work again for 7 months. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean that's that's just the way the film business is, you know, you have really big highs and then you know, and I basically had to dig my way out all over again. I but I never stopped working. I did a pilot for Stephen Botchko for a short-lived series called Bay City Blues that was famous for being the first place that Sharon Stone ever barely acted. I then did a feature for Art Linson and Cameron Crowe that was their follow-up to Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which ended up being a total and absolute flop. I remember that. And I could not get a job after that, so yeah. I went and started editing TV movies And in two years, I cut seven TV movies. I would start one on, I would finish one on Friday. I would start the next one on Monday. Always working, in fact, with the same producer. What was the name? Bob Goodwin
0: good Goodwin. I, I worked on a lot of T V movies back in the day too. And there was it was always the same guys doing them over and over and over. Yeah. Years. It was yeah. a big business.
2: And so we did we did seven seven pictures just like just like that. That's some remarkable. of them were terrific. Some of them were total turds. I think yeah. I think
0: for, for the people that listen to the show, what's really interesting about, about your trajectory is at some point you did have to go in and tell someone, hey, you know what? I'm tired of being an assistant. Not not to make this about me, which I normally, no. which I always no, you do. Know. But
1: uh, <laughs> all right.
0: But when but when I was having a, a, a kind of a rough uh, a rough time, I remember I called my friend Sam Zoda, who was in charge of ITV, and we had been friends since the beginning of my career. So I took him to a really nice lunch, and we sat at lunch and. I dressed real nice and I said to him as we were sitting at lunch I may, may have been even before we had lunch I said Sam you're in charge right like He's you all
1: know <laughs> I, said,
0: I said you decide right you decide who gets hired and who doesn't get hired and he was like I guess I do I said great I said so here's the deal <laughs> I really want to make a shift right I want to do some non-scripted stuff and since you're in charge I just want you to know that if you were to hire me that I wouldn't let you down I'd work tirelessly and i do the best job and i swear to you people would be like where'd you get this guy like i just want you to know that you know and he was like okay he goes, okay let me let me see what i can do and he like we left that lunch it was a bold move on my part but it was my friend so it wasn't that bold but still I, i said it out loud and then he called me a week later and said hey would you come in and meet with one of our executives, Brian. He's doing a show, and it's called uh, My Ride Rules, and it's about cars. Anyway, I said sure. I came in, got the job, did two seasons of that, and then while I was on it, they were like, "Hey, could you do this other show at the same time?" Just wondering if like you could handle. And I was like, sure. And they were like, okay. So and, and that became Ghostly Lovers for uh, Travel Channel, and it was just a crazy moment because it did all occur just because I had that lunch, and I was like. Was what it good what the hell? It was. Oh my god! It was the most I'd ever gotten paid. Really? Yeah. And it's when I learned that. And people, if you have, if you're listening, get your pencil and paper and and, uh, and write Let's this get down. Your phone and <laughs>
1: get a texted note, Robert. Don't get pencil and paper anymore.
0: Voice okay. notes, bro.
1: Voice notes, okay. But or,
0: or rewind it. But your quill and <laughs> pen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Ink and in your quill. <laughs> <laughs> but the. The, it was weird because I had I had done all of these independent films. I had raised all of this money for indie filmmaking. And most of my films that I raised the money for went on a shelf or didn't get sold anywhere except for like, I don't know. I, I don't want to say Lifetime, but <laughs> LMN, you know, <coughs> something like that. <laughs> but um, but they wouldn't go anywhere, right? I'd be surprised if a 1,000 people came to a theater to see some of those early indies I made. But when I went to work at this network, it was so different because you would do the show you'd edit it you'd finish it and it would air on Friday and you'd have ratings and people would be promoting it and there'd be like trailers all week week long talking about your show and I got such satisfaction the satisfaction I had never gotten before yeah. out of seeing that happen in a machine yeah. and I was like yeah I'm, I'm going to I want it. I want this for my you're life you an indie
1: filmmaker and that's
0: when I started, you and I started talking. I was like, no, 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 we got to, this is, that's, that's when I changed my mind. I was like, I don't want to do indie anymore. It's too hard. You live with it too long. You know, like when I do a movie, it goes away now and it goes into this machine of people that have this and that and send it to foreign and do.
2: Yeah. I mean, we were told by one of our, our executives at Netflix that 200 million people could very easily see our movie. I might edit wow. that out because we'll <laughs> <laughs> be looking for residuals
0: on that. <laughs> no fazools. Hey, you want the fazools, right? But yeah, 200 million people might see the movie all over the world. That's an amazing amount of... A of, of, uh,
1: 100 million see it.
0: Half of that. If a if a million, <laughs> a million million see it, I'd be you, stoked. Yeah. But uh, but no, I mean it's a machine, right? Netflix is going to put billboards all over yeah. Sunset Boulevard, and you know it's all gonna over the globe, all what do you over mean, just yeah. uh, Sunset. You are right, but Everywhere. the ones I'll see, right? I am going to be super proud of, of seeing that. And there is something about that that changes. I don't know. It changes the business for you, you know, because at first I was very. And I think a lot of people that listen to the show are the same way. You just want to prove everybody wrong. You want to prove that you deserve to be in the business. You want to show them that you could do it for less.
1: Which was a bad idea. But you got to, you got to start somewhere. It's
0: not a bad idea. It's how we all start, right? Yeah. I'm going to show you I can do it. I'm going to show you that, that, um, that your movie that you made that sucked, that I can make it for less. Which is what I realized, you know? <laughs> which is what I realized. Because when I was here at Universal, I was trying to make movies that Universal would buy. But they would look at me going like, well, yeah, that's like the movie we made, but we spent 50 million on it and everyone took their little pieces And put them in their pocket, and you made yours for two million, and no one's making anything, and we can't steal any money from that.
2: As a producer once said, you can't steal a million dollars from a million dollar movie. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Who said that? Uh, I don't know, but it's somebody. I've did. heard that
0: from you before.
2: That's unless funny. there's
1: residuals, there's an opportunity. <laughs> uh, unless there's, right,
0: there's gonna be big residuals now. I heard the streaming deal, not to get off track here, but I heard the streaming deal for actors and directors and writers is going to be if a movie on a streamer gets a lot of viewers that they're going to get a residual mm. from the amount of viewers it gets I don't know how mm. they're going to measure that yeah, mm. exactly. but no, uh, they have
2: a way of measuring
1: Oh, they, they totally.
2: It's, but, a, yeah. it's, a, it's in their they, little computer. They they, they yeah. can hit their special private yeah. Google. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. But that's the
0: private one that they won't share with the... Yeah. Exactly. Right. But they know. 200 right. million just went to 2 million. Yeah. Oh, wow. Look at that. 2 million people. Wow. Oh, I read it wrong. Um, so you you have worked with some amazing people. You worked with Billy Crystal. What was it like? I mean, first of all, Billy Crystal is like one of my idols. I, I probably watched... When Harry Met Sally, a lot of times. I would, every girl I'd meet, we'd be watching When Harry Met Sally, you know. Uh, and I'd always use it as references for the yeah. movies that I developed, you know, because it was, it was such a great movie. But what was it like working with him as a director?
2: It was an incredible joy. I mean, 61 uh, was the story of the 1961 home run race between Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris to break Babe Ruth's single-season record of 60 home runs. Billy had met um, Mickey Mantle first when he was eight years old and his father took him to a baseball game and they sat in Louis Armstrong's box at Yankee Stadium. Um, Billy Crystal's father was um, Irving Crystal and was a partner in Commodore Records and was a big jazz producer. Billy got him to autograph the program. Years later in the early 70s when he was just doing stand-up, he went on the Dinah Shore show and another guest was Mickey Mantle and he took that same program and had Mickey autograph it twice. I've, oh. uh, I've seen it once when he was eight years old and once as an adult and they got to be really close friends and Mickey told him that if anybody ever does my story I want you to do it and so it was a huge thing for for Billy. It was a realization of uh, of just a lifelong dream and I had known him when we did "Throw Mama from the Train." Oh yeah! So I was familiar with it, with him already. I did was on he the produce that? Like, no, he didn't. He oh, just he just, saw, acted, he just yeah. acted in it. But before that, I had been at Castle Rock in the '90s and done a film called Little Big League which was a big baseball movie in fact it's the best testing movie of my entire career which just goes to show you as they say no one knows anything because the movie <laughs> opened against the lion king and didn't make a nickel but it's one of those pictures that people come up to me and tell me that yeah. they love years Do you like that movie yeah that it's, a,
1: it's it's a classic
2: so billy knew that i knew how to cut baseball in fact I've done five major baseball projects, starting with the Bay City Blues. I've also done a football movie with The Rock called The Game Plan. I did a soccer movie with Amanda Bynes and Channing Tatum. She's the man. I don't care about sports at all. I never care who (laughs) who won or lost. But, I mean, working with Billy on 61 was just one of the best experiences uh, I've ever had. We got, you know, we have known each other a long time. We got along really well. For one reason or another, he decided that I was his consigliere on the movie. And whenever we had meetings with HBO, who were the producers, I was there. The proof is in the pudding. We got 12 Emmy nominations for that movie. It's amazing.
0: It's yeah. a great movie. It's a great piece. You know. it's a, yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah,
2: it's that and the uh, the picture I did right before that, The Contender, are probably my two favorite films. I'm known as a comedy editor, so figured that my two favorite films are a biopic and uh, a political thriller.
0: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> con- the, I remember The Contender because Joan Allen, I think she was older but she hadn't really made it until the contender right Right. yeah I remember reading about being really intrigued because she was so good and did she get nominated for an Academy Award? She
2: did get nominated. She She and Jeff Bridges both got nominated. Did she win? She did not win. It
0: was a great movie. Um, Christian Slater was in that yeah and he was terrific and then he was sort of making a comeback too. Actually a lot of people in the movie her she was new and he was making a comeback and and it was a beautifully uh, done movie I love that movie.
2: It was. Really, a remarkable story because it was an indie, in fact, yeah. that was made for $10 million. None of the actors got paid. Um, Jeff came in because he's an old friend of Jones. Gary Oldman came in as an executive producer. People would just fly in and out. We were shooting in Richmond. After we finished it, Spielberg saw the picture and bought it for DreamWorks. It was the only film that they was ever produced outside DreamWorks that they bought. We made the contender for $10 million, and then the next picture that Rod Lurie and I did was The Last Castle with Redford again and James Gandolfini, which was budgeted at $80 million.
0: That's crazy. What I like most about getting to know you and working with you is uh, I miss the old Hollywood in a lot of ways, and I think... Not, I'm not calling you old. I'm just saying, like I am old, <laughs> I am. the old Hollywood. The old Hollywood was is so romantic, you know. I don't feel like all of these movies that you're talking about, and like DreamWorks and the, the heyday of Spielberg and the buying of Contender, and you know, all those stories uh, just feel so romantic and fun. And
2: it's like everybody is ready to always talk about the good old days. But the one thing about the movie business is that it's 120 years old and it has been nothing but change for 120 years. I mean, the talkies came in in 1929, you know, and then there was the 30s and the 40s, and then color came in in the the 50s. And it's constantly changed. I mean, the position of the studios have changed. Studios have come and gone. I've worked for a bunch of studios that no longer exist. Right. You know, Orion Pictures. Yeah. I did two films for Orion. Um, New Line. Yeah. I mean, RKO. 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 Yeah. I mean, the standard and the businesses, the things are constantly changing, and I can't say that it's always for. The worst, there were executives in the bad old days who were absolute nightmares. Uh, Harry Cohn, who was supposed to be a real thug, or Louis B. Mayer, who ordered Judy Garland to take um, speed and, you know, and second all to stay awake and thin. Yeah, right. (laughs) Jack
1: Warner, he screwed his brothers out of the company.
2: My first job at a studio was at Warner Brothers in 77. And there's a screening room there that was Jack Warner's screening room. And right to the right of the screen, there's a door. And you open the door, and inside there's a toilet. Because Jack Warner had a weak bladder, and he would sit down to watch a movie, and he'd always say, is this a one-piss film or a (laughs) two-piss film? (laughs) (laughs) Like... Our guest was
1: saying about the talkies coming you mean in.
0: michael jablon jab, 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 Jablons, jab Jablons. yeah right <laughs> yeah.
1: or just make sure it's right on the check like we said <laughs> mr jablow um the talkies the, the silent film stars when the talkies came in the the, the silent film stars were like oh i missed the good old days you know yeah. with charlie chaplin you know what i'm <laughs> saying so? of course yeah. what
0: do you mean I think i just watched the charlie chaplin documentary like towards the end of his career he did a movie where he shot the whole thing and then replaced the girl and then shot it again and then didn't like it and went back to the original <laughs> girl and shot it again oh
2: yeah that was that was city lights which is a, an absolute masterpiece but he worked on that film for two years yeah he shot the ultimate scene 127 different ways wow. over a period of two years because he could never figure out that's how to insanity it. though right he insanity. was the biggest star in the world he owned his own studio he spent his own money he had no bosses who is his editor <laughs> <laughs> I, wonder. Yeah. What a pain.
0: I, I do have one question though what would make a good editor in 2023 Like what
2: is is it? Someone who understands human behavior because the essence of being an editor, I mean, you know it's like they always give the Oscar for editing to somebody who cuts a big action film and there are a million cuts but the reality the the heart of being an editor is understanding actors performance what's real, what's not real what's funny, what's not funny, what's dramatic. It is, you know, you basically, the job of the editor is always uh, to protect the performance of the actor, to make sure the actor looks good, to make sure that the actor, that that the story is being told in the best possible way. Um, it takes, a, you know, it's not just a technical thing. It really has to do with bringing your entire self to a project yeah. and being able to um, communicate. I mean, you know, it's, it's like editing does not happen in a vacuum. Making movies doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, we had a couple of screenings on our film for uh, preview audiences. And the preview audience, audiences will always surprise you And they will like something or they won't like something. They won't like something that you think is just absolutely great. And it's your job to get rid of it. Um, You know, they they say to be a good filmmaker, you have to be ready to kill your babies. And um, if things don't play for an audience, you have to rework things. On Meet Me Next Christmas, we had a, a scene that wasn't really landing. And I surprised me. And I went back in and went back into the dailies and recut the whole thing. Because the, the audience is always right. Nobody knows anything. The biggest reaction I ever had to a, a preview was Little Big League. Literally, we screened it. We screened it in Marina Del Rey on a Thursday night and scored a 92. And we said, This is not right. This is, it's the highest score I've ever gotten on a movie. So we took it to Glendale and screened it for an all Hispanic audience. Mm -hmm. We got a 94, and they were standing up at the climax of the movie and cheering. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. And this is a movie that made not a a dime. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So, I mean, it's so much has to do... (laughs) No So much has to do with... The mood, the literally the mood of the audience, Timing. the weekend that a film opens, yeah. the mood, the mood that it drops on TV. Certain things now get a chance to to build. Breaking Bad, yeah. which is now considered a huge classic, its first two seasons on AMC it didn't do well at all it only caught on when they it went on to Netflix yeah.
1: Seinfeld right Didn't Seinfeld was oh it?
2: Seinfeld was a disaster
1: yeah and then
2: they just kept sticking with it and Castle Rock didn't want was really invested in it and it finally became you know just the cash cow of all time there's
0: a lot of good stories like that um, before we go I, I need to say this because it's the very first time that I've been we've had a guest that can actually confirm that we work with extrememusic.com all the time
2: <laughs> so oh.
0: so meet me next christmas uh in you know there's all kinds of music in it dara taylor is, is our composer i had work we worked with her on um holiday in santa fe joel high who's our music supervisor brought a bunch of cuts from extrememusic.com to michael and michael put them in the movie so extreme music <laughs> is actually in wow. Look at that Yeah In a Netflix movie So just want to shout out To uh, Russ Emanuel ExtremeMusic.com For sponsoring us And always giving us This great platform To talk to independent filmmakers And also studio filmmakers Um,
1: One movie Robert Take it easy over here
0: Uh, Mr. Jabba
2: over here is like, I always thought that if I ever write an autobiography, I call it Hollywood Hack.
0: (laughs) (laughs) uh, ExtremeMusic.com for all your music needs. They are amazing, and they give you really beautiful music. Um, But anyway, Michael, thanks for sitting with us and talking about your career and the movies you've done and giving a little bit of insight to what an editor really should be doing. uh, Or trying to do.
1: Thank you, Roberts, for talking about yourself again. Thank you, (laughs) you, and aloha.
0: Thank you, Michael, for being here. I'll see you uh, at Meet Me next Christmas. Guys, thanks again, and uh, we'll see you next time on Film Hustlers. That was a good show, guys. Thank you.
1: Jablo. Get it
0: right, Roberts. Dude, I got it wrong so many times. I want to cut it out. (laughs) I don't give a shit. (laughs)